The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. This is the last show of 2010. Welcome again to be with us. Uh, I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We uh, also, as we remind you almost every week, we do have a one-time only introductory offer for both Roger's letter, uh, Chen's letter, and my letter. You can call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426 to take advantage of this one-time only introductory offer just check out the publications and see if they are for you. You can, again, call Claudio at that number or call or go to our website at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, to learn more about those publications. Well, Chen and Roger have both had very good records. Uh, Chen, in particular, has had a stellar track record, as we've told you before, turning $5,400 of his wife's IRA in 2003, January of 2003, to over $1.3 million. By the end of November, Roger also has had a lot of good calls over the years, and, and we're going to be talking to both Roger and Chen in a few minutes uh, about their uh, how they've fared in 2010 and what their view is going forward. Uh, into the new year. Well, again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. You have made it the number one show on the Voice America business channel by quite a ways. We're very, very proud of that. Uh, and of course, I want to thank our corporate sponsors for making this show financially viable. For the first hour of this show, they are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, North Atlantic Resources, American Bonanza, Palangio Exploration, Millrock Resources, Revolution Resources, and Uranium Energy. And with the exception of Uranium Energy, most all of our sponsors are gold exploration and or gold mining companies. And I'm very pleased to have those kinds of companies be 
with us as our sponsors because, as I have been saying almost every week, I believe this is the buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining stocks. And that is true because of a growing loss of confidence in fiat money. What is fiat money? It is money that is not chosen by the markets but is forced on the population by law and by military force. Why has America, with its allegedly free market capitalist system, used force to compel its citizens to use increasingly worthless paper money instead of what markets have chosen for centuries as money, namely gold and silver? Well, I'm sure our featured guest this week, Adrian Salbucci, will have a few things to say about that. Uh, and we've had other people on this show, like Congressman Paul, uh, and Congressman Paul will have some ideas about how maybe we can overturn this forced uh, loss of our freedom, this forced uh, re uh, this requirement to use paper money as opposed to allowing the markets to decide. Why shouldn't we be able to determine if we want to trade with our neighbors what we use in that trade? Uh, this show is focused on trying to determine what is really going on in the economy, what is really going on in our world, as opposed to what the American propaganda machine would like to have us believe is going on. The mainstream media keep in mind, is the establishment. They have an interest in shaping our behavior in a way that continues to serve their interest and keep them on top of the heap. People who use their heads and have an open mind can shape a better future for themselves. And that is what this show has been trying to do, and I think with a fair amount of success, thanks to people like Chen Lin, Roger Wiegand, and a host of others that we've had on our show uh, through the years, uh, actually since we started in uh, March of 2009. The establishment hates gold. They love fiat money because they control the printing presses. Uh, what we are talking about is no less true of our government than it would be if a mafia organization were printing money in the basement of some Brooklyn apartment somewhere. The printing of money allows those who engage in that activity to take wealth away from those who have created it. Once you recognize that and when you realize that the fiat-based monetary system is in the process now, at this point in time, I firmly believe in the process of self-destruction, it is not hard to understand why gold and silver, as well as the shares of companies producing those metals, are doing very, very well and have been for a number of years now. Um, of course, this letter is focused on understanding why that is true. We're also really focused on trying to provide some good, solid ideas about how you can profit from what is going on. We have many ideas presented in this show about gold and silver mining stocks. As I mentioned, the sponsors in the show mostly gold and silver mining stocks. Uh, they are afforded the right to talk about gold, and usually we do have a CEO of at least one gold mining company talking to us uh, on this show. This week that's not the case. I guess it's the Canadian holiday has played a role into that. Uh, however, I would like to call your attention to the fact that in my newsletter this weekend, I do expect to highlight my favorite gold and silver stocks. And if you like a silver stock, I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to tell my readers about a company I just learned about that I think could be the very best silver play out there now, given its current very low market cap. Um, and of course, I would be happy to pass that on to you, but uh, and I will next week actually, but I, I think it's only fair to tell my subscribers first uh, since they are paying subscribers to give them my top picks going into 2011, uh, and we will share those with you next week. Uh, of course, uh, you could also take advantage of that by signing up for my newsletter. Again, go to miningstocks.com for my newsletter. 
Roger Wiegand or Chen Lin's newsletter or call my office again at 718-457-1426 or go to miningstocks.com. Meantime, I would also like to call your attention to my Face the Analyst interviews at jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y taylormedia.com. All one word, no triple W's there. jtaylormedia.com. There are four very impressive microcap junior gold mining companies there that I interviewed a few uh, a few weeks a few weeks ago, actually back in Valdor, Quebec. Abcor Adventures, Adventure Gold, Golden Valley, and Metanor Resources. Well, as I mentioned, today's main guest is Adrian Salbucci. He's the Argentine economist who has been on our show twice before. Uh, he was on once with. Um, uh, with Daniel Estelin, and he has a new book called The Coming World Government, Tragedy and Hope is the question mark. Adrian really joins a host of people we've had on our show that really collaborate each other. Daniel Estelin, as I mentioned, has been on the show more recently. We've had Lieutenant General Boykin, John Loftus, and over the past two years, folks like Congressman Ron Paul, James Perloff, Larry Parks, Richard Mayberry, members of the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, Ed Griffin, uh, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, and many, many more. And what we're seeing is a common thread running through the understanding that it is, in fact, a ruling elite that is taking control of our lives and increasing or reducing our political freedoms, our economic freedoms, and we're going to be talking to Adrian about that in a few minutes. Although we don't have a gold mining company interview scheduled for today, we do have an interview with the uranium exploration company that I think uh, holds great promise. It is a highly speculative story. The company is Athabasca Uranium, but I do think uh, given its very low market cap, around $4 million, it does have great upside potential. We'll be talking to Gil Schneider. He's the president and CEO of that company. That will be in the second hour of the show. Well, before we get to Adrian Salbucci, I am really pleased uh, for a change to have both of my partners with me together today, Chen Lin, who authors What is Chen Buying, and Roger Wiegand, uh, who authors Trader Tracks. Welcome, Chen, and welcome, Roger, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Pleased to be here, Jay. Thank you, Good Dave. to have you, Roger, and good to have you, Chen. Chen, uh, let's start with you now. Um, you've had a pretty good year, 2010. Not pretty good, a darn good year. Could you just tell our our listeners a little bit about what made you money in 2010? And then perhaps let's get into your outlook for 2011. You have really written a very extensive report, your outlook for 2011. But let's just, uh, first of all, share with our listeners what worked for you in 2010. What made you money? Well, the key trades, one of the key trades I made was to load up gold and silver in the summer. Um, I put in my letter in August 31st, say, you know, I look gold and silver to be breakout. And it did break out in September. It was a huge breakout. So, and at that time I was fully invested and it was almost, most, you know, maybe 90% of my, uh, maybe 80, 90% of my holdings in gold and silver. So that was a, a huge win for me. Uh, if I look back, another good trade I had was to uh, to buy pop stock right after Chile earthquake. Uh, that was a very quick uh, profit uh, because the Chile earthquake strike the, the pop industry very hard, so make uh, you know create a huge shortage of pop. So make uh, if you buy pop stock at that time, you make you know almost 100% in a week, something like that. Very very fast profit. Um, so I, I made some good money on, on that trade too. So, and uh, another good trade I had 
was to uh, uh, the BP oil spill. Um, originally, when they when they came out, it, it was saying only one thousand barrel per day uh, oil spill. But you know, if you have any knowledge, just a little bit knowledge of the um, um, the oil industry, you know that kind of well. They cannot, you know. Leak one thousand barrel. It's got to be you know five ten times bigger than mm-hmm. that. So right. I realized there must be something uh, hiding there. So actually, I sold all of my offshore drillers uh, on that day when they announced only a thousand barrel leak. That was the very very beginning of a BP spill. spill. <laughs> I wish I shot some, but I didn't. I don't. <laughs> I'm not a shot seller, but I sold all of mine. And you look at those, uh, I have a very big position in Asica Energy, a big, very big position in ATP. Uh, at that time, Asica I sold at almost $3, APT, APTG, I sold at more than $20. Even up, even now, none of them has recovered you know, from that high. But both of them, you know, big, take, took a big dive after I sold it, you know, 40% haircut, now recover maybe 20%. They're still below the price I sold right after the BP spill. So that's a good sell, you know, just a you know, few good yeah. trade, you know. So, so, so okay. far, you know, it has been worked out pretty, pretty good. But I did, did make some mistakes. I also mentioned in my letter, you know, uh, in, in the review what I have been done. You know, I hope I, you know, I hope I didn't sell uranium too early. I hope, you know, there's some uh, gold stock didn't do well, so on and so forth. Well, thank you, Chen. You know, folks, I think uh, Chen's admission that he made a couple of mistakes is probably one of the uh, one of the things I like about Chen most. You know, if you can own up to your errors and you can say, I've made some mistakes, folks, that means you're uh, open to learning and improving yourself. And, uh, you know, if Chen makes mistakes, I'd like to make the kind of mistakes that Chen's making because his returns have been phenomenal. Chen, I'm going to come back to you in just a moment and ask you to give us your view going forward. But I'd like to turn to Roger uh, first, and Roger, ask. Uh, I'd like to ask you, what made you money in 2010? Well, personally, what made me money, okay, uh, I don't trade the shares because I prefer just to go on the futures. Uh, the last three years, we've averaged 100% or better, with the exception of Lehman year when I broke even. Uh, primarily, the focus on those kinds of trades have been uh, gold spreads, silver spreads, and grain spreads, uh, specifically soybeans. Also, we've done some futures trading uh, in the Swiss franc, uh, uh, shorting the euro and a, and a, and a variety of others uh, in the futures themselves. Now, that's just the futures side of it. On the stock side, uh, Hecla Mining had some issues where they had to uh, spend a lot of money to buy out a partner and then sell one other mine and raise more capital, and their, uh, their share prices had gone down considerably. We knew the company. We know the management. We've known them for years. We believed in them, and sure enough, they came back with a rush. And they've not only come back eight or nine hundred percent from where they were, but we recently we just recently we just had a uh, a call option trade that was very short in duration that made over a hundred percent. There's going to be more of those. We like to do them. We did several in '05 and '06. Then the Lehman thing kind of squashed the markets. We let it sit for a while. Now they're coming back. Uh, the other big thrust this year, Jay, was with the silver companies. Uh, the intermediates, uh, there's three or four of them that we like, and also some of the smaller ones, three or four of the smaller silvers did exceedingly well. Probably our top pick in the juniors uh, was X-Tory Gold Mine, 
where we've been in and out three times. They're currently up 300%. We're still open, and we think that one has a lot more room to go. So some of these some of these companies have just had a fabulous year. Another one in the junior was Canisil Resources, Canadian Silver. Uh, we started at that one with 18 cents, and it's uh, been as high as 38 presently, about 35 cents. Uh, we've got a couple of them on our list that you have on yours, too. And what we do is we look to make 20 to 25 percent and then give uh, our readers a, an option to either hang on for a longer pull or take some profits. But several of these, what we've done, Jay, is we've gone in and out and bought them three or four times, uh, taking profits anywhere from 25%, some of them 100 to 300%. We've had good luck this fall in finding some new opportunities. I'm very fussy. I don't want to keep more than 25 companies in my letter. And uh, we, we took out two or three good companies that, that are just fine, but their stocks weren't moving. So we set those on a watch list, and we bought in, brought in three new ones, and all three of those have proven to be a good idea. So off we go. And we've also got some ETFs. Uh, I've got a German ETF on gold. We've been in it three times. Uh, the last one made 120%, 119%. We're up 32% now. Uh, we've got a couple of other. I've got one junior right now that I think has the biggest upside I've ever seen. It's going to be a buy and hold for about a year and a half. So we're very thrilled and excited, not only what's happened in 210, but what we see coming in 2011. Well, Roger, would you like to disclose who that junior is? Could you do that? or, or which, you... which junior now? Well, the one you just spoke of, the one that, you, that you're so high on. Oh, uh, that would be Comstock Mining. Oh, Comstock Mining. Comstock okay. Mining, yep. And, They're in, in uh, Nevada. We entered that one at 327. Uh, the man that owns the company is exceedingly rich, uh, under guise of protecting horses, he assembled most of the land he's got uh, on that property, over six square miles. Uh, the old Comstock in, uh, was active from 1860 to 1890, and they, on, on dollars equivalent to today from what they did in that 30-year period, it would be approximately $15 billion in gold and silver. And the forecast that we see, it's a rough and early forecast, is that's the minimum amount of ore left on today's dollars, or perhaps even better, ten times that amount of money. So, okay, I would like to would would just like to remind our listeners, of course, that ore is not ore until it is economically viable. But I hear what you're saying, Roger. I am familiar with that story, and I do like it a lot. Unfortunately, you beat me to the punch. The stock was real cheap when it was first brought to my attention. I didn't act on it as quickly as I should have. It may still be a very good buy at these prices. I'm not sure. You like it a lot, so I like it a lot for the long pull. I don't think it's a trading stock, G. I think it's no. something you okay. keep for a year, year and a half. Okay, very good, Raj. I've got to cut in here and let Chen talk about his 2011 outlook. Then I want to come back to you and get your view also okay. on where we're going in 2011. So, Chen, you made a lot of money in gold and silver, pulp stocks. You got out of oil stocks. You did very well in 2010. Going forward in 2011, what are the themes that you see? You're very bullish yet on 2011, aren't you? Yeah, in general, I'm quite bullish on the market uh, in 2011. A part of it is, uh, I think, it's because a lot of uh, investors misplaced their bet. They're uh, betting on the um, uh, the treasury market, the bond, the fixed income, the cash. There's a lot of money in those markets, a lot of cash on the sideline. 
I remember I was talking to some retired people who are my neighbors, and when we met in the summer, they told me they were so happy. They put money into fixed income, and then the appreciation was so good. And now they're just trying to put all the money into that. They basically get out of a stock market completely. Mm. You know, in the past few months, I, I haven't talked to them yet, but I think they probably would be very sad because the bond market just craters, you know. And yeah. I think with this Obama, this tax, huge tax cut, another trillion dollar to be printed without paying for, uh, mm-hmm. people will start seeing the similarity between United States and then Greece and Ireland and others, and uh, how can the bond market be, be good, you know? Yeah. That, that's well, the problem. Some, at some point then, Chen, though, if the, if the world starts to view the U.S. in the same light as it does Greece, you would think that would be adverse for our markets, uh, but you don't see that in 2011, maybe 2012? Well, I see the bond market, the bull market is over, so the people who trap in the bond, in the fixed income, though, they maybe. Uh, has to be forced to leave or move some money back to stock market. That mm-hmm. will give a punch for the stock market in 2011. Uh-huh. Uh, beyond 2011, it's hard to say. Uh, I think there's a lot of problem, fiscal problem, you know, all the balance sheet problem, all, all these issues may start to play out uh, in 2012, maybe 2013. But I think cert- for the you know shorter midterm. Uh, point of view, 2011 should be a good year uh, for stock market in general. Well, I should uh, remind listeners, uh, I'm, I'm old enough, I've been around long enough, I don't know that you have, Chen, I think Roger has, to remember the 1970s when we did have a bond bear market with interest rates rising and we had a commodity bull market. I think as long as the Fed remains behind the curve, that is, as long as interest rates uh, are, you know, the real interest rates are negative or very low, then you can have both a bull market in commodities and stocks at the same time that the bond markets are creating and interest rates are rising. Uh, what else? Uh, so you see quantitative easing, Chen, much more of it. You see Europe uh, with QE as well? Yeah, exactly. I see uh, United States probably will continue to QE. There's a problem with all the municipal government, with all these muni bonds. And uh, actually, they're worse than the Greece, worse than the European countries. So they will have problem with refinancing. That problem will start showing up in 2011. So muni bond could could crash. They already hit very hard in 2010. The part of 2010. I mean, what will Bernanke do? I think uh, the most likely choice for Bernanke is to another QE to buy those muni bonds. To buy muni bonds, isn't that something? Yeah. Yeah. Very bullish. Yeah. Very very bullish for gold. Then I would guess. Oh yeah, absolutely. And silver. Uh, Gold and silver. Same for Europe. Europe, I, 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 I put in my letter exactly how much uh, bond they're due. I mean, how, how many billions of billions dollars each country, with Spain, Italy, you know, Portugal, uh, all the money are due in 2011. They have to refinance. Uh, I see there's just no way they can refinance out of it themselves. Uh, there's a talk in Europe that China will come in to help, but I don't think China can buy so much. Either. Uh, the only way I see to get out of it is uh, a European central government to start buying those bonds themselves. Yeah. So it, it, it will be some kind of QE. It's the same as the QE Bernanke is doing, but Europe probably won't call it QE. They gave another fancy word, but it's the same. 
you know, Chen, I just thought of the fact that uh, you were talking about Bernanke with trillions of dollars of QE, quantitative easing, uh, really printing money is what it is. And you think about the Chinese have accumulated, what, a couple of trillion dollars worth of hard-won uh, foreign exchange that they've earned by by producing real things in exchange for money that we're printing. I mean, it really, I, I just got your point there, that the Chinese don't have enough money really to be able to finance the enormous problems that Europe has, let alone the United States. And are we moving, is China moving away from the U.S. debt markets as well? Uh, this is hard to say. Uh, I think um, because uh, the, the amount of quantity uh, Chinese uh, re foreign reserve owns, uh, it's hard for them to just move away from one market or another. Um, sure. But the key was that right now the, the, the CIO running the, the foreign reserve is, uh, is a PIMCO guy. So actually he kind of played uh, the market back and forth, played market psychology back and forth. So, oh, interesting. Uh, so PIMCO is so powerful, so large, the world's largest bondholder, I think, uh, 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 firm in that field. Um, so, so, Chen, you're very bullish on commodities, on maybe base metals as well, energy, uh, yeah, all, I, the, all the uh, commodity, all the inflation plays, I guess. Yeah, I'm bullish on the commodities. Uh, in particular, I'm quite bullish on pop. I'm quite bullish on energy. I'm bullish on gold and silver as well, but I have a little bit concern, you know, start have right now because uh, look at all the analysts, like Goldman, all the other analysts are so bullish on gold. Uh, sometimes, you know, when analysts all become very bullish, uh, sometimes gold can take, a, you know, a year in hibernation and then come back in another year. You look at the past 10 years. Sometimes yeah. they go up a lot in one year and then rest. You know, not going down, but not, you know, as going up as high, maybe up 10, 20 percent. And then that's kind of resting, you know, consolidating. And then go up again. And I, that's, I cannot, I, I don't know, you know, I, yeah. I have, a, uh, you know, but I have a lot of gold and silver stocks. And I see them very valuable, undervalued. And I see it's a stock picker's market. You have to know what you're doing to pick the right stocks. Well, you certainly, uh, Chen. Let me just uh, put in a plug for you. You certainly seem to know what you're doing. You don't, you don't hit a thousand percent, but you have a very high percentage of winners, and then you have some that are extraordinarily fantastic winners. Uh, unfortunately, I got to turn. Uh, we got to turn to Roger because we have. I'm going to try to get a couple more extra minutes from the engineer here. Uh, Chen, thank you for that. But Roger, want to turn to you. Your views. You heard what Chen has to say. Uh, are you on the same page with Chen in most regards, or do you most, have some Most points, yes, Jay. The bond market, I think, is done. Uh, PIMCO, uh, Bill Gross even called a short on his own fund, which I find amazing. Oh. I mean, he just publicly said the bond market is, t is done. They started up an equity operation. Yes. Uh, I think they're, they're moving into Australia and some of the other markets. So consequently, that's a big shift. And like Chen was saying, where does the money go? It's going to come out of bonds, and it's going to go into equities. It'll go into uh, the new development companies in the mining business and the commodities business. Uh, it'll go into some of these emerging markets. And I also think that uh, with China holding all this paper, this U.S. paper, and don't forget Japan has got a huge amount as well, uh, they're taking that money, uh, that paper, and they're investing in hard assets. And they're investing in numerous places all over the world, whether it be oil, gold and silver mines, copper mines, or whatever. I think that China, this past couple of weeks, 
said that they would support the Euroland market primarily because it's a big selling market for all their products. Keep in mind the U.S. population last count was 309 million in Europe and the Euroland group it's 850 million. So China has a vested interest in Europe. They want to keep selling their stuff over there and they don't want that place turned upside down with bond problems. Although I think those bond and credit problems are going to get deeper and, and, and continue to be more of a problem. So it's a question mark as to how long they can kick the can down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's always, it always goes longer than you think, as you know, Jay. Well, it does. And, you know, our friend uh, Chen Lin has had, has, been, has had a much better track record than yours truly with respect to this, uh, uh, this market and how long it can go. I thought we were going to be, see some more contraction uh, in the economy this year. I thought there was a very good chance we'd see a stock market crash. I was wrong. Chen was right. Roger, in all, uh, with credit to you as well, you played it very well this year. You had a good, uh, you, you were ahead of it and, and really stayed on the long side of the market much longer than some of my friends and some of the people that you and I both respect. So I think in summary here, as we, before we go to break, uh, I guess uh, where we're at, and I would just say that I, that I concur with both of you guys, that gold and silver is a place to be. I think it's very interesting. I noticed a, a, a graph that I published in my last newsletter last weekend, the gold bond ratio. And I just thought of it, Roger, as you were talking about Bill Gross shorting his own firm, getting out of bonds, getting into equities. And I'm wondering, is Bill Gross perhaps buying some gold, too? Could very well be the case, I believe. Uh, and, and going into the inflation play, he sees inflation coming down the road. Chen, you and I, Roger, I think we're on the same page. My only concern still is there is a powerful deflationary force that's called debt that cannot be repaid. Next week, we're going to have Ian Gordon with me. Uh, that would be the first week of the new year. Ian is the PERMA bear. He is the, the, uh, uh, the PERMA uh, deflationist, and Ian will provide some, some good arguments on that side of the equation, I'm sure. But uh, I, I think the best way to play this is, is to watch the markets, let the markets talk to us, and let's not try to predetermine what markets should do and then, and, and then bet according to our own whims and, and wishes and ideas because that can be a very, very, uh, a very bad strategy, as I've found out too often myself. I want to thank both of you guys uh, for being with me this year again as partners. Uh, you're two wonderful partners. Uh, we've, we've had a good relationship. I hope 2011 continues on, and I hope that we can have a, at least as good a year in 2011 as we've had in 2010. Well, folks, don't go away. That's all the time we have for this segment. But coming up next is going to be Adrian Salbucci. Adrian Salbucci, the Argentine economist, is going to talk to us about the new world order and what is happening and how they're trying to take away our liberties, our freedom, and our welfare. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Adrian Salbucci. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, our main guest this week is Adrian Salbucci. He uh, was with us a couple of times before. I consider him a friend. He's uh, visited me at my home here, uh, me and my wife at my home here in New York. We've had a nice Italian dinner together uh, at our at one of my favorite Italian restaurants here in Queens, New York. And Adrian, I learned uh, on that visit, had actually lived in Queens, New York himself for a while. So he's an Argentinian, uh, but his English is, uh, is impeccable. It's, it's better than mine. Uh, Adrian is an Argentine economist. Uh, he's a researcher, a lecturer, an essayist. Uh, he is the founder of the Argentine Second Republic Movement. 
Uh, Sabuchi, uh, Adrian has worked as an international business consultant, an analyst of power structures and the political, economic, and financial globalization, and has been uh, the communications project manager and translator of the El Tra Traductor uh, Radial. Uh, and that is uh, a website that I'll let him tell you about uh, as we go forward in today's talk. Adrian uh, has recently written uh, another book, and that's the uh, we're going to talk to him about today, uh, and that uh, the name of the author, the name of that book, I should say, is The Coming World Government, and he poses the question, is it tragedy or hope? Welcome, Adrian, again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, hello, Jay. It's great to be back on your show again, and uh, thank you for your very nice comments, and well, my English is about as good as English can get in Queens, New York, but I hope it's all right, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really glad to be on your show. <laughs> Hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, that's that's more like it, man. <laughs> yeah, how you doing, man? Well, anyway, Adrian, um, jokes aside, you're enjoying summertime down there. We just, Mrs. Taylor and I drove back from Ohio uh, in a blizzard uh, approaching the George Washington Bridge the other evening, and it was not a lot of fun. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got this guy Salbucci coming on my show, and he's probably down there uh, sitting on a beach somewhere uh, sipping a martini or something. 90 degrees in the shade, to be exact, today. Okay. All right. Well, I can take 90 degrees without the heat, uh, but in any event, uh, let's get into the serious stuff, the sure. stuff that really matters, because I know uh, it's good to enjoy life. It's good to have a few laughs along the way. Life is too short not to. But on the other hand, there are some really serious issues that we're facing right now in America and in Argentina and around the world. Uh, in 2010, you talked about the 12 event triggers that are leading uh, away, leading us away uh, from national governance towards a universal or a one-world government, uh, and that would be an environment where the laws of the U.S. Um, are giving ways, or laws of all nations are giving ways to laws that favor a very few elite members of society who will force the rest of us into a, sort of a, a slavery state. Uh, so I'd like to take some time during the first half of today's show to discuss uh, some 12 points that you talked about, uh, 12, let's say, events uh, that sort of, that sort of um, are events that, that give us warnings and signs that, in fact, what you're talking about, a one-world government, is very much in the making. And it's not just some fantasy of someone. It is really underway. The, uh, the underpinnings for it, the orchestration of it, is very much underway. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask you to talk just a little bit about your country, Argentina. You've had some very rough times in Argentina, not that long ago, uh, uh, 2002 or so, uh, and, and you believe those rough times have resulted from exterior political, economic, and military forces uh, much more so, or basically, as I understand it, uh, other forces outside of Argentina that have been imposed on the Argentinian people. Uh, could So in setting the stage for the bigger global picture, could you just talk a little bit about the Argentinian experience and how that may apply to the rest of us? Well, yeah, I think that what's happened to Argentina several times over the past decades were sort of, uh, you, can, you can interpret them as tests, prior tests on a small scale of what is later being applied on a much larger scale. So, for example, in 1989, we underwent one of the worst hyperinflations uh, the world has ever seen. But it was all uh, limited to Argentina, so it was, it was only Argentina suffering the consequences. Then in 2001 and 2002, we 
underwent a total monetary, financial, and banking meltdown. But again, it was all limited to Argentina. And I think that the powers that be, the global power elite, amongst other things, they sort of tested to see how that can be triggered, macro-managed, and using psychological warfare, control the mass of the population so that, uh, for example, the last time we could not get our money out of the banks. We, only could, we could only uh, withdraw $250 a week. So people went out into the streets with pots and pans, and they really let off a lot of steam. They were all very angry. And I think one of the uh, tests that was made then is to see how you can manage and let people get to, uh, let, let off a lot of steam, let the days turn into weeks, the weeks turn into months, and people will more or less get used to the situation. So I think that the lessons they learned from Argentina are very important and they are now being applied elsewhere, especially the whole idea that uh, in one part of the cycle you privatize all the goodies, all the, the, the mass profits, and then when all the losses come in, you uh, invert the uh, equation and you socialize all the losses. Well, we had to bear the, the socialization of all the losses in 2002, which resulted in half the population falling below the power, poverty line and they never came back. And yet at the same time, not one single bank, not one single private bank folded. And I think now we're seeing that on a much grander scale, where after decades of huge profits and bonuses going to the CEOs and the top managers and the banks and the hedge funds and so forth, when the system entered into a collapse stage starting in, I don't know, somewhere between March and September 2008, well, the, all the losses have been socialized. And the name is taxpayer money going into bank bailouts for banks that are too big to fail, which means they are too powerful to fail. And now quantitative easing one and quantitative easing too, which means eroding the dollar and making the entire world pay for it. All right. So you had losers, which were the, the masses of people in Argentina. You had some winners, which were the banks. Who owns the banks in Argentina? Are they, they're public companies, so some of those people that were losers presumably have some share interest in the banks. Do they not? Yeah, but for the most part, all, all our we practically have no local banks. All our ba our entire banking system during the 90s had been privatized and brought up by your well your major uh, global uh, trademarks: uh, J.P. Morgan, Citicorp, HSBC, Bank of Boston, uh, Goldman Sachs, and so forth. So we don't really have any strong local banks, except maybe one or two state banks. Even the 24 provincial banks, where uh, each province had its own pri uh, public bank. Bank, they have all but one been privatized. And again, they have been privatized to interests that are closely tied into or aligned with the interests of the global power elite. Interesting. So the vast majority, uh, let's say the, the majority of interest in the larger banks, the banks, let's say the Argentinian money center banks, then would be these international multinational banking interests, uh, the, like the likes of which you just named. Absolutely. And they, in turn, in a very roundabout way, they, the way they do in most countries, also control either directly or indirectly Argentina's central bank, which is the key factor in just about any country, because uh, the idea of the entire banking cabal is to operate functionally as private banks, but strategically to be able to, in conjunction as a banking establishment, control the central bank of each country so that they will always control the supply of money and they will be able to replace the uh, need for funding with private uh, fractional uh, banking, interest-bearing uh, private money, which is what they do in Argentina. And, well, in America, probably it's the clearest example because the Federal Reserve is almost outright owned by these banks.
All right, so we have a monopoly situation, as Ed Griffin says, about the Fed. Is that what you say? Basically, there is a central bank that controls the, the, the big banking picture in Argentina, just as in the United States. And, and that central bank, then, is owned by whom? Do you know? Is it owned by these other banking interests, as the Fed is in the U.S.? Or... No, it's much, it's much more roundabout. It's more like the European system. Formally, the Central Bank of Argentina belongs to the government, formally. Okay. But, you can, formally. but, but they, they have, they have a, it has a special law governing it, which says that it is fully independent of the government. So I, ask my, I always ask myself publicly, if uh, I pay for the salary of all these people and these people don't respond to the government, I like to know who they report to because I'm paying for their salary as a, as a taxpayer. So what ends up happening is that the people who always uh, 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 sequentially run the Argentina Central Bank will impose policies that are not to the benefit of the Argentine people and the Argentine national interest, but rather to the private banks, which is pretty much the same picture you have in most, most all over Europe and, and throughout Latin America. Okay, so if the vast majority of the shareholders of the banking system in Argentinian in Argentina are not Argentinians, uh, and the vast majority of Argentinians saw themselves uh, their living standards shrink very drastically, then you've had uh, a net decline in the wealth of Argentina. Would you say in the uh, let's say in the living standards at least of Argentinians as a result yes. of these events? Yes, uh, in the living standards, definitely. The problem is that, they, that, and that is probably the tragedy in the case of Argentina, is that we are such a vast country with such incalculable natural resources and wealth, whether it be mining, oil, gas, water, foodstuff, just about anything, even the, its, it's, it's actual geopolitical uh, positioning on the map, that in a way, and we have a very low population because we have five times the territory of France, and yet we're only 40 million people. France is 70 million people, just about. So that one would expect a vastly rich country with a small mm -hmm. population. We should all mm -hmm. live with the standard of living of the Swiss. And yet, as I say, half the population is below the poverty line. So we have parasites have invaded, essentially. Um, and, I, and I know you use the, uh, the picture of the Trojan horse, uh, essentially. And maybe we'll get to that a little later uh, in the discussion. But essentially, um, there, there, uh, there is a foreign body has snuck into Argentina and essentially uh, parasitically removed wealth from from uh, from Argentina, so we're, this brings me then to the point that I really want to focus on next, and that is those twelve trigger events that you talked about in a video. And by the way, before we talk, start talking about that, could you let our listeners know where they can see this video? Because I think you know not only it's 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 a visual aid, and you have a very nice uh, graphic there where you you uh, you know you you have outlines of the various points it was very helpful to me as I watched that tell our listeners where they can uh, where they can watch this video where, where, what website can they go to well basically right now we have two websites one is www.asalbuchi that's a s a l b u c h i dot com dot a r and then another website which is under construction which is www.secondrepublicproject altogether secondrepublicproject.com we're uploading this because we only got got this out and we're doing everything just a a small group of people but uh, mm -hmm. yes there there you can see the uh, the video which uh, in in 48 hours has already almost almost 5,000 views, so it's, it's doing nicely. Very good. I would encourage our listeners to, to watch that and then, and then think critically. And if you've got questions and you want to send them on to me, uh, you, you're free to do that. Uh, send them on to, to the radio show here. And uh, you know, if there are questions that you have for Adrian, we'll, we'll pass them on to him and get them answered either, either on a future show or 
I'll answer them, uh, I'll pass them on to you, read them on, on to you. Well, let's get on to these 12 trigger events, starting with the first, Adrian, which is the uh, financial meltdown. Talk about that. Yeah, uh, just just before I get into that, what the, the basic idea that why we talk even about these triggers is because I I believe that uh, they are now in the process. The global power elite is in the process of closing the stage of globalization to usher in a more formal world government. That will not t take place on a specific date. There will be an overlapping where globalization starts to wrap up and uh, world government is ushered in gradually. And, you know, we are probably in that overlapping situation right now. That being said, I believe that the way that they are doing this is through 12 triggers, the first three of which tying together very, very, very uh, neatly. First of all, you have the financial meltdown, which is still ongoing, and on which neither Obama nor any leader of any country has taken one single step to really help the national economies. They have all the steps they have taken, whether it be taxpayer bailouts, the European Union bailout of, of, of Greece and, and, and coming now, uh, Spain and Italy, uh, quantitative easing one, quantitative easing two. It's merely trillions and trillions of dollars to bail the bankers out. So the financial meltdown is still there. It's getting worse and nobody is solving it. The financial meltdown, and here is really the tragedy of, of, of what I believe is happening. The banking, the, the, financial, the global financial system is uh, unsustainable and ir unrecoverable. In other words, it is really a meltdown. There's no way that you, that you can really bring it back the way in its present situation. That, however, has gone and caused what I call trigger number two, an economic crisis in just about every country. And the tragedy is that if you look at the national economy of the United States or of Greece or of Europe, any country in Europe or of Latin America or just about any country in the world, economies, the real economy, are basically intact. The problem is that they are being dragged down and destroyed by the ongoing financial meltdown. Uh, in a way, finance is like a malignant tumor which has grown and now is metastasizing and threatening to kill uh, the economic, uh, the real economic body of just about every country. And that in turn, and I'll stop there, leads to the third trigger, which is a financial meltdown that generates huge economic crisis will naturally go into the third trigger, which is social upheavals in just about every country. We know a lot about that in Argentina. We've seen it in Greece. We've seen it in Ireland. We've seen the UK with riots. We've seen it uh, mass strikes in Spain and France. We're, we've seen it naturally in Iceland, and we're seeing it again in Argentina. And I think most countries in the world are going to start undergoing increasing social upheavals, which is also a very, very uh, tragic uh, situation for just about any country. But those social upheavals, of course, then give uh, the government, the existing government, uh, uh, an excuse to come in and take away more freedoms and perhaps start to use military control, martial law, that sort of thing, which you can almost expect is going to happen uh, as, uh, as things unravel, right? It's served in a silver platter. And look at that. If you look at those first three uh, uh, triggers, as I call them, financial meltdown, economic crisis, and social upheaval, the people who are designing this on a global basis, and doing the, they're doing this very scientifically and very intelligent, intelligently, unfortunately, and very shrewdly, they are macro-managing this because they know that, for example, a financial meltdown will move forward very quickly. 
the economy will move forward much slower. In other words, finance can change in just a matter of minutes. You can, you can throw slush money one way or the other throughout the whole planet. The economy will take longer. Uh, econ economic recovery takes longer, and then economic collapse takes longer. And the ensuing social upheaval will take even longer because people will sort of, you know, bear it out, bear it out until they can no longer bear it. I saw that in Argentina where the whole financial system was collapsed already by the month of March of 2001, and yet people only took to the streets in December 2001, because people tend to say, well, we'll see if they'll solve it, and when people realize that the government couldn't solve it, that's when they really got angry and go, went out into the streets. So the people who are micromanaging this are very much aware that they can play around with the minutes and seconds of, of finance, with the days and weeks of, econo of, of the economy, and then the months and even years of social upheaval, and that gives them the time to sort of put things together and lead things, especially to the psychological warfare of the mass media towards the objectives that they want and not the ones that we need. You're very interesting. You know, uh, getting to your point about the system, the financial system not getting better but getting worse, uh, I came across an article the other day that was talking about how all most of the banks that receive TARP money in the U.S. are now deteriorating and, in fact, their financial situation is getting worse. That at a time when we are told the economy is getting better. At least we're told that in the U.S. So yeah. clearly, there's some, you know, some very basic structural issues, and I think it's all about debt, isn't it? The debt cannot be repaid. Well, yeah. You, you see, w one of the things when, when I'm sorry, I'll, I'll just jump for a second to our sure. our idea of second republic. One of the mm -hmm. five pillars of our proposed second republic for Argentina, for just about any country, the third pillar says reject the debt-based system. Somehow, through psychological warfare, maybe 70, 80, 90 years of psychological warfare, they've convinced us all throughout the world that if as an individual, as an organization or corporation, or even as a government, if you you want to do anything which is constructive you have to do it through debt and mm -hmm. that doesn't work and what what is the the, the, the ensuing uh, um, result we have massive amounts of public and private debt individuals organizations and governments everybody is grossly indebted and the great and the great question is indebted with whom who is our creditor who is the planetary creditor I mean, mm -hmm. everybody's in that. That, that, that I think, at least, is a, is, a, is a proper question, which gives a lot of food for thought. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you're in debt, you, you are in a position to be enslaved. Uh, and people who have wisely stayed out of debt, uh, although, you know, Adrian, you look around and you see what's happened in America, and this is why the psychological warfare you talk about, I think, is so real. Uh, let, let, me, let me sort of give you, when you were talking about debt and, 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 and perhaps bring this to the table, which might bring uh, something that, that the audience might be able to relate to. Uh, Argentina has been completely and artificially indebted as a nation on its public side and, on its, and, and even on its private side, but more so on its public side, because of uh, the fact that we have so grossly mismanaged things. Like, you know, we all know, as you were saying before, if you earn a thousand, you can't really spend more than a thousand for too long a time because you're just gonna you're just gonna collapse. Whether it's a family, an organization, or a government, and the way that what's happened in Argentina, and I think now the same thing is happening to America and it's happening to just about every country in Europe, is that they have indebted countries so much so that today the main source of conflict, source of weakness, source of hardship for Argentina is its public debt. And look at how good the system works. 
that they have figured out a way ever since we were able to get rid of the uh, military who took over power in 1976. Uh, we went back to so-called democracy in 1983. Not one single government from 1983 until today has ever decided to investigate Argentina's foreign debt because most of Argentina's foreign debt can be traced back to the debt originally incurred by this illegal, violent military civilian regime that took power in 1976, and we would be able to repudiate the bulk of that debt based on the judicial concept of odious debts and not only not pay it, but even ask for the money back that we did pay and ask for some sort of, uh, of, uh, of you know, have them pay a penalty for having an indemnity in our favor for having uh, imposed such an illegal debt upon us. And yet the system works so well through the financing of the political system that, as I say, not one single president from Mr. Alfonsin in 1983 to Christina Kirchner in 2010 has ever said, I'm going to investigate the foreign debt. So the system closes in on itself, always perfectly in favor of the interests of the banking cartel and naturally against the interests of we the people. Imagine that. Well, I guess you know who owns the system then. But Adrian, as, as you were talking here, a couple of points really hit home with me. Given some of the people we've had on my show here over the last year and a half, Dmitry Orlov, for example, uh, talked about the demise in Russia and he talked about the stages of that demise, starting with the financial meltdown, then the economic crisis, and then the social upheaval. He saw that happen in Russia. Uh, maybe you'd like to get some ideas if you have any, any comments on that, uh, to the extent that you have, have paid any attention to what, what goes on in Russia. But I'd also like to mention that we've had John Perkins on this show, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and John has talked about how that new post-nuclear uh, war, uh, uh, nuclear age model, uh, has come through where, uh, you know, where we pay attention, where, where basically the whole idea is that we need to get foreign nations indebted. Uh, and that is how we control them. So, um, you, you know, this, this seems to fit like a glove. What you're talking about, what's going on in Argentina, is very much uh, what has happened uh, globally and what's going on. Uh, any thoughts on that before we break for uh, commercial? Absolutely, because one of, one of the problems that I think we have, whether it be Russia, whether it be Argentina or America, is that the uh, educational system and the mass media have coaxed us into becoming short-term thinkers and short-term planners, whilst the global power elite, from the, uh, based on the, in the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, and, and the Trilateral Commission, amongst many others, are experts at medium and long-term planning. So if you take that long-term perspective, the basic rationale and logic behind any loan and any debt was seen by William Shakespeare over 400 years ago in The Merchant of Venice, where the usurer, Shylock, he does not want the money back. He wants his pound of flesh. And the same thing with Argentina, for example. Argentina's foreign debt is about two-thirds of our GDP. It comes out to about 200 billion. The worst thing that any president of Argentina could do is call the IMF and all the bankers and say, hey guys, here's a $200 billion check. Take your money and just leave and never come back. Because we will be creating two huge problems. First of all, where are they going to find another bunch of idiots to loan $200 billion at usury uh, interest rates? And secondly, we will be freeing, we will be releasing ourselves from their dominion and their, uh, their tutorage. So in a way, the worst thing we could do is give them the money back. Bankers don't want the money back. Bankers want you to roll it forward so that you always owe them. And in the case of Argentina, the pound of flesh is it can be described as the territory of Argentina, especially southern 
Argentina, the Patagonia, where they have worked, worked, worked things in such a way that over 70 years through caretaker governments, all our population is clumped into major cities and Patagonia, which is a huge part of the map, is almost uninhabited. Well, uh, there's so much in what you just said there, Adrian. We're going to have to take a break right now. We're going to go to a commercial break, and we'll be right back, folks. Uh, Adrian has so much more to talk about. We've only hit on the first three of those 12 trigger events, so as soon as we come back, we're going to uh, let Adrian explain the other nine trigger events that you need to pay attention to so you're aware of what's going on. Thank you. Don't Don't go away. We'll be right back with Adrian Salbucci. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the high risk but high reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of america's next generation of mines a leader in this search is millrock resources based in anchorage millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the alaska frontier in arizona the target is giant hidden porphyry copper deposits financing this search are joint venture partners tech valet inmet kinross and Altius, major industry players together the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions at gmail.com. 
That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am really pleased to have with me uh, Adrian Salbucci. He's back uh, for the second, first half of the second hour today. Before we get back to Adrian's fascinating uh, topics, we're going to uh, just thank each of you again for listening to this show. And again, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. Our sponsors for the second hour of the show are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, North Atlantic Resources, Adventure Gold, Brigus Gold Corp, Gold Bullion Development, Golden Minerals, Metanor Resources. Uh, those are the sponsors for the second hour, and thanks to each of those companies, many of which uh, have told their story, and many of them are moving forward very nicely, either into production or uh, proving up substantial amounts of gold in the ground. So uh, this is a bull market of a lifetime, I think, for gold mining companies. That's the practical side of what this show is about. This show is about how you as an individual can take care of your family uh, and and, uh, put your own financial house in order and uh, avoid as much as possible uh, being wiped out, being uh, the, having the parasites take away your wealth and try to protect your your family's interest as much as possible and those uh, and the interest of your loved ones. Uh, but let's get back to Adrian Salbucci. Adrian, uh, you, we talked about the first three of the twelve trigger events that uh, that are leading towards world government. The first financial meltdown, then that leads to an economic crisis, and then social upheaval. That all makes a lot of sense. But the fourth one you mentioned on your video that, I, again, I would recommend people try to watch if they can uh, on the Internet is pandemics. Talk to us about pandemics. Are you suggesting that the ruling elite could be planning pandemics, spreading germs throughout the world or something to, uh, to cause to wreak havoc or what? Well, I think they're going to be more cautious than that, and we've seen quite a number of experiments, the swine flu, the bird flu, even the AIDS uh, virus, which goes back several several decades already. I think that they're trying to see, and I, I remember reading a, a very interesting article recently by Alvin Toffler, where he mentioned that the uh, with the human genomics uh, experiment or exercise, they probably will be having very soon the possibility of generating artificial viruses that will only attack certain strains of DNA, of human DNA. So, for example, he, he, he said in a rather funny way, he said, maybe they can make China catch a very bad cold, meaning mm. by that, that maybe they can generate a virus that will only attack the strain of DNA in most of the Chinese population, but will mm. not attack neither you or me, or vice versa. Maybe AIDS did that with the black population, but maybe didn't do it as bad with, with other sectors of, of, of the population and so forth. I'm no scientist in that, but I, I thought that that was... Uh, something to some food for thought because if they can find a way that people will be so scared of these pandemics that we will accept willingly accept mandatory vaccinations into those mandatory vaccinations RFID radio frequency identification chips can be mingled with them perhaps put into a, into into uh, at least certain sectors of the population and that will increase 
the overall control of the population because you know jay if you if you reinterpret what was globalization all about these 20 years of globalization that i personally believe are now being wrapped up these 20 years was the time they needed to implement the electronic infrastructure that they need for as much control even full control of populations as possible the internet cellular telephones rfid chips global positioning system millions upon millions of tv and surveillance cameras all over the places uh 200 tv channels or 500 tv channels i don't know radio and, and so forth so what they now have is they have the infrastructure <clears throat> for almost total control of the population now what they would love to have is that each one of us would have would have a transponder or an rfid chip embedded into our own bodies and they will give any excuse for that it's a way of not going around with cash it's a way of uh, you know barcodes and so forth that make making life quote unquote easier for you so i would say that pandemics even though i rated it as a yellow alert not a red alert is something we have to very much keep in mind and if anything pandemics global warming which is trigger number five and another terrorist false flag mega attack these three have something in common they in a way justify that no individual nation state not even the united states of america can cope with such a challenge and all of these global problems global challenges are more justification that we need global government and i think in a way they want to con convince the mass of the population of the world that we now need global authorities and that national authorities even those of the united states are not enough to cope with all these problems so it would be uh, in our own interest, rather than them having to come through and, and you know, uh, with force, uh, basically to, to convince us then that we should be happy uh, for a one world government because it's going to make our lives better than it would be otherwise. A, a, a good slave is one that you have chained to the wall, but the best slave is the one that will chain himself voluntarily to the wall. And they want us to be the best slaves, not just good slaves. Mm-hmm. So pandemics, global warming, I know I've heard, uh, have read some other ideas that global warming, in fact, uh, was an issue uh, that, was, that was put forward in order to, to gain control under the United Nations or some sort of one world government uh, organization, certainly. Um, and, and there's a lot of doubt. I mean, there certainly is a lot of good, honest, scientific doubt about the legitimacy or the, let's say, the origins or the cause of global warming. Uh, is so you don't, our, uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't believe ahead. everything Al Gore said, right? <laughs> well, he uh, he invented the internet, didn't he? So yes, uh, I forgot. Oh, sorry, he, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> right, he he did that. So so let's give the man credit. You know, he he did in a, inter, he did uh, invent the internet. So he says, uh, global warming. I mean, there's there's lots of people, uh, lots of, of of reputable scientists that are. Uh, that are that just don't buy it, but of course the ruling elite, the establishment, the media uh, make those guys look as if they're you know they've got three heads or something, and, and as if that seems to be another another process that's used to marginalize the marginalization of anybody that thinks differently than the than the mainstream. Isn't that right? That's part of psychological warfare. And, you know, in, in that video, when it comes to the global warming trigger, I uh, mentioned, and I really recommend that people who have a chance should read, there's a very good article by an Irish analyst called, uh, by the name of Richard Moore. It's called Prognosis 2012 Towards a New World Social Order, where he says that global warming could be used to justify that we will all have to have credits in, in what he called, in what's already being called carbon credits. But there's a good rationale behind that, because one of the 
effects of globalization was to keep the economy growing. So, for example, when globalization began with the deregulation of the economy and the privatization of public companies, they tapped into those revenue flows. When that was already more or less over and done with, they invented derivatives, which just created fake money. But now there's just nothing, there's hardly no way that they can make the financial sector grow. So now, instead of controlling growth of the economy, they want to control consumption. We are migrating from putting the focus on growth to putting the focus on consumption. And when you put the focus on consumption, whether you like it or not, you're going into a Stalinist Marxist system that's going to control what you consume, why you have it, where you live, what you do with it. And that will, I think, will usher in just about a, a, a Stalinist Marxist-style society. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly we're seeing, you know, talks about uh, telling kids uh, what they can eat. Uh, we're seeing more regulation in terms of restaurants uh, not being allowed to serve certain kinds of foods, and and there may be some rationale to some of that and some good health ideas behind it. But what about the control of our lives and individual responsibility and individual freedom, which they don't really want us to have? I guess the idea is, as you say, to be the best kind of slave is one that you voluntarily just enter into into slavery with. L let me ask you about this um, uh, terrorist attack point that you're making here. Uh, in your video, you mentioned something about that this could be a much bigger attack than anything we saw on 9/11. Could you well, talk yeah. about that for a minute? Yeah, that, that, that really, I think, should send uh, shivers up all our spines because, let's face it, 9-11 was fa fantastically and phenomenally well carried out. It was perfect. It was two, the per perfect collapse of three buildings, everything we saw, and yet the window of opportunity that they opened up for themselves with this false flag attack, they just did not take advantage of it. Maybe because they did it too well. The buildings collapsed too quickly and too perfectly. So now they know that they are back on the defensive. George Bush you know, every, everybody saw through the whole thing. On top of it, they used 9-11 to justify the destruction of Iraq, and yet at the same time to say that there was no connection between the Saddam Hussein regime and 9-11. So now, if they're going to pull that trick again of generating a false flag attack, it will have to be something phenomenally huge. I don't know, a WMD, a weapon of mass destruction over a city in America or in Europe or even in Latin America. I don't know, maybe they'll, they'll decide to destroy a city in Argentina, and they will blame it on the next enemy, whether it be an augmented and, 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 and uh, a magnified uh, international terrorist, Muslim terrorism, or North Korea, or whatever, but they will try to use that as another justification for the further militarization of society, for further control, both military, political, uh, technological, and economic over the entire world, because they will come back to us, as they did with 9-11. It's international terrorism, and we will see that mantra going on for days and, and weeks and months. Adrian, uh, you use the word they, and critics of, um, uh, of these ideas a lot of times say, well, who are they? Who are these people that are carrying it out? And, and how could they really do that? Because you're talking about a conspiracy here, Adrian, and how can you get you know, people to agree to do anything in concert with one another? Could you talk to that, who are they, and is this a conspiracy or, or what? That, that is really the great question, and I admit that I got carried away and I said they a little bit too loosely and too tightly. When, when, when I think that when we say they in, in that sense, we are, we are speaking, and I'm going to be very specific, a very small 
numerically, but extremely powerful group of people and organizations. They have names, they have addresses, they link up in organizations. I believe that their main organizations, uh, it would be too simple to say it's Exxon and JP Morgan and I don't know, and, and the Soros organizations. Okay, those are the actual operational entities, but they are basically the planning centers, the places where they plan all of this out, and they have names, addresses, and, 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 and specific uh, institutions, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, the Bilderberg Conference, uh, the Tavistock Institute, which is probably one of the main psychological warfare institutions in the world. It's based in London. And what they do, and this is for those who speak of conspiracy, it is only natural that people, especially very powerful people that have common interests and common objectives, should come together and plan out how they are going to promote those common interests and those common objectives. It is only natural that Rockefeller and Soros and Kissinger and Harriman and the Queen of England, the Queen of Spain, and the Queen of Holland, etc., should come together privately to see how they promote the coming world government that will suit their needs and not your needs and my needs. If anything, Jay, for those who accuse us of being conspiracy theorists, the really stupid and irrational conclusion would be to say they never pick up the phone. George Bush never picks up the phone to talk to Rockefeller and Ro Rockefeller never talks to Kissinger and Kissinger never talks to Rothschild and the Queen of England, the Queen of Spain, and the Queen of Holland would never even dream of uh, speaking over the phone and coming together to have a good tea in the afternoon and plan out the new world order. It is the natural way people behave. All people, all human beings that have common interests and common objectives will come together to plan them out. Sometimes they can do that publicly, but if your objectives are a bit devious and you would, if you would like to avoid being under the public eye, then you're going to do it behind a closed door. That's what all corporations do when they have board meetings. But of course, you know, those of us who talk about they, these people that are that are pulling this off, uh, then we are then looked at as as if we are nutcases, and that's that's again that psychological warfare that you're talking about. Speaking of warfare, uh, we've we've now talked about the first six of your twelve uh, trigger events, but let's go to the seventh, which is war in the Middle East, and somehow I believe you're tying in uh, WikiLeaks somehow to this possibility, or or maybe there's some relationship. Could you talk about that? Well, yeah, because uh, war in the Middle East, I always call it the, the uh, Israeli wild card in a way, because you never know what, you know, the, Zionism has uh, its own specific set of interests and objectives, which often even are counter to those of certain sectors of the global power elite. And I think one of the things that at least gives me a lot of faith that we can still fight back <clears throat> is that contrary to what the way things were 20, 30, 40 years ago, <clears throat> where you had a global power elite that was almost 100% in agreement as to how to do certain things, I believe that now in the last 10 or 15 years, there is a fracture. There is actually a split within the probably the, some of the, the upper echelons of the global power elite. And we have two sectors which are pretty much identifiable sometimes, <clears throat> are really at, at, at loggerheads against each other. A lot of it has to do, and I hate to say this because I know it's a, it's a tough question, but it has to be addressed. With Zionism, there are certain sectors within the global power structure that I think are sick and tired of being dragged by the, by the noses, by the, the international Zionist uh, interests. We saw that when uh, Stephen Wald, the former dean of the JFK School of Government at Harvard, and John Mearsheimer from Chicago University published a splendid book called U.S. Foreign Policy in the Israeli Lobby. They didn't do that individually. Somebody much, much up higher than them said, 
publish that book because we have to get this word out. So when, when you come to WikiLeaks, and I figure, okay, WikiLeaks, very interesting, but if you analyze it, it's, it's all information that in a way it is uh, friendly, so to speak, to the Republican uh, project for a new American century, pro-Zionist sector within the global power elite. You have all of a sudden documents leaked saying that Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates and, and Qatar are very concerned about the Iranian nuclear project. It was music to the ears of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, you had other, other information which was simply ludicrous and very light, like, you know, against Berlusconi or Merkel or Sarkozy or Christina Kirchner, and yet not one word at the fact that the Taliban had all but destroyed the poppy fields of Afghanistan and had stopped the heroin trade. And after the United States and Britain liberated Afghanistan in October 2001, in came again uh, Afghanistan as the major supplier of heroin for the entire world market. Not one word about what really happened on September 11. Not one word about what really happened on 7th July 2005 in London. So I figure whatever these WikiLeaks are, they seem to be very favorable to one sector of the global power elite and not to the other. And just one final comment. I'm always very uh, weary when all of a sudden one lone genius <clears throat> comes out with something that creates so much turmoil, whether it be Julian Assange from WikiLeaks or these youngsters, these brilliant youngsters who all of a sudden invent out of nothing Twitter or they invent out of nothing Facebook. I think mm. that they are merely the, the visible facade of something far more powerful behind them. Very interesting. So, But war in the Middle East could be another trigger event that would uh, force us or, or move things towards this one world government that you're talking it, about? It might be when you're losing your game of, uh, of chess, you can always kick the, <laughs> kick the chess board. Okay, so uh, an, an ecological event is another possibility, I think, uh, if I understood your video. Yeah, I remember, you know, it, 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 uh, exactly a year ago when I, when I described these 12 triggers, I had mentioned that a Chernobyl-like accident would have a devastating effect because if we go back to the 80s, the 1986 Chernobyl accident, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine near the city of Kiev in the former Soviet Union was the beginning of the end of the former Soviet Union because people, it, it became so obvious that the, the Soviet state could not even control its own uh, atomic energy uh, reactors, that it became it, it helped to bring down the whole regime. So I was wondering, will we see something similar in the United States? Well, it wasn't actually an, uh, a, a nuclear accident, but I think that the deep water horizon was so grossly mismanaged that it might be one of this, that type of event that will reduce credibility in the United States of America's present uh, political uh, system and present authorities. Because in a way, I think that when, as, they, as the global power elite wrap up globalization and move on to world government, they will need for the demise of the United States, just as the bipolar world was closed to usher in globalization 20 years ago, and the Soviet Union had to go because globalization was going to be under the aegis of the United States of America. So now, as globalization is wrapped up and we go in towards global, the former global government, it's the United States of America as a superpower that has to go. It's not going to be wiped off the map, just as Russia wasn't wiped off the map. What disappeared was the former Soviet Union. Now you have about 25 countries there. Well, maybe what is disappearing is the United States of America as a superpower, and you might have a series of maybe even several countries or much weaker organizations that will be more easy to blend into the coming world government. Mm -hmm. What about um, 
you're talking also about another possibility here is an assassination of a major political figure. Well, you know, when, when these events come about, I, I put that as a yellow alert because maybe it might, it, it, but it, it does generate a lot of turmoil and it could be very easy to blame it on somebody. I don't know, some president of a top country, some prime minister, royalty, the clergy, somebody from the clergy, I don't know. I'm thinking in terms of something that might happen in Rome or in London or even in Washington, D.C. If that could be, it's so easy to pull a public assassination. And if you could then blame it on, again, your, your, your favorite uh, international enemy, well, it would be the equivalent of a false flag attack with just one dead. Well, certainly, uh, as I look at this list, Adrian, some of them are things that have taken place. Some of them are things that, that might take place that seem very, very possible and very viable. Uh, and, and we're just looking forward at these trigger events, then, that would give an excuse for the ruling elite to take power uh, and to control our lives more. That's what we're really looking at here, isn't it? Basically, that's the, what they are looking for is to generate <clears throat> in the public uh, uh, psyche reasons why we need world government, we need to further erode the sovereignty of every nation state, put all power into international global institutions. They are designing, and they already have designed, many of these institutions which are firmly in their grip. So instead of having to control the United States here, Brazil there, Argentina over there, Indonesia, something like 180 different countries, which is rather complicated, they rather have those 180 companies subordinated to, to uh, a, a smaller group of very powerful global world institutions that will enable them a much more efficient, transparent, and powerful control of the world. But one of the great lessons of the former Soviet Union for them is that people will not accept in the long run being told what to do in a coercive manner. Uh, uh, an old professor of mine used to say, there are two ways of controlling people. You can have a very nasty policeman with a German shepherd dog on every corner to keep people at uh, uh, very, very, very uh, disciplined, or you can have a TV set in every room. Uh, mm -hmm. As time went on, they realized that the TV set in every room, in other words, psychological warfare, it's much more efficient because it is subliminal, it is voluntary on the part of the victim than being told what to do. Because when, when they set up a, a, a wall like the Berlin Wall and they tell you, you cannot leave, well, the first chance you have or the first moment that they are watching the other way, the first thing you do is leave. This uh, reminds me of what, uh, what Ed Griffin said when we talked to him on this show about the Fabian Socialist and the... Uh, and, and the Russian communists uh, back at the time of the revolution. In fact, the Fabian Socialist and the communists, the Russian communists, had nothing. Uh, the end was to be the same. Their goals were the same. It was just a matter of whether you took it, whether you, whether you took over and gained control of the world through the barrel of a gun or you did it through some sort of propaganda manipulation. Uh, and as we've had uh, 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 Mr. Orloff on this show suggesting that the U.S. propaganda machine is far superior to anything that the Soviets had. Uh, because he said the Soviet people really understood that propaganda was propaganda. It was a lie. Whereas the American people, basically, they watch the mainstream media, and it's very believable. It's, it looks, you know, you, you have to be, there aren't too many of us, although there are a growing number of people that are starting to question it. Let me go on to another, um, you talk about a potential uh, attack on a rogue state. I, I guess it would be like Iran or North, Co North Korea or Venezuela, even somebody like that. 
Yeah, I think that one of the things that they will need, you know, very often, first of all, when you have armed forces, uh, like any group of fighting men, you need to exercise them every now and then. So every now and then, every so many years, they need to have a good war in the, on their hands. But uh, certain rogue states, which uh, I, I put orange alert on that. Maybe I should have put yellow alert, because I think that at some point in time, maybe not just yet, when any country, if, it's, if it does it individually and if it can be isolated, any country that will really, really, really challenge them, maybe they will attack that so-called rogue state just to, give, just to give it a lesson to show everybody this is what happens to you when you put your feet out, the pla out of the planet, when you really want to do something totally different. The important mm -hmm. thing is not to fall into that trap. I'll give you an example. If Argentina were to all alone and very heroically generate its second republic and put a lot of nationalist uh, uh, blah, blah out into the, into the media and we would give it in a silver, a silver platter for Fox News and CNN to say, look at these crazy nationalists. Well, mm -hmm. we, they, we could easily be chosen as a rogue state and be given a lesson, quote unquote, and everybody else in the world would say, hey, never go the way of Argentina. Look what can happen to you. That's why we have to think not as, as, as nationalists, but we have to think as global citizens so that we all act together and the same ideas blossom and become, uh, 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 we generate a, a critical mass of people who will be all over the, all over the world because then when one country founds its second republic, whether it be Argentina or Portugal or any country, there will be public opinion in just about every country in the world saying, hey, these guys are doing right. Otherwise, the mass media will say, there you have a rogue state, let's invade them and destroy mm -hmm. them. The only mm -hmm. rogue state that they can now uh, really take action against would be North Korea, because they're rather ridiculous, and Iran, because they take advantage of the fact that, you know, there's a very big cultural divide, but, you know, they're not going to mess around with, divide, with, uh, with Iran that easily. But any country in the Western Hemisphere, in the Americas, that can really start putting things into action, it would be very difficult for them to counteract that and to call any of our countries uh, rogue states because there are too many linguistic and cultural ties that would mm -hmm. not enable them to easily lie. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, we just, we're really running out of time. This is fascinating stuff. Adrian, I would like to have another half hour with you, but unfortunately, we're almost out of time. We've got to move on to staged religious events is something else you're talking about, potentially. Well, that, that's something that I had mentioned last year, and I think it's something, it ties in strictly with uh, uh, psychological warfare. We now have the, the technology to transmit through the distance are uh, holograms. And uh, if all of a sudden CNN comes out on TV and says, hey, a flying saucer landed on the White House lawn and they decided that they want to talk to humanity and they're going to do it through the president of the United States or the UN, well, we're just going to have to believe it. You probably know, and it's, I think it's worth reminding, that on the day that Obama won the elections, 4th November 2008, oh, CNN's uh, reporter Wolf Blitzer was in the CNN studio in New York, and he spoke to uh, a lady by the name of Judy Yellen in Chicago, in the CNN studio in Chicago, but she was actually transmitted as a three-dimensional hologram into the CNN studio in New York. And to show that it was three-dimensional, the camera in New York actually made a 180-degree uh, swing. So there, and she was really, she, it looked like she was there, but she was really in Chicago. She was 700 miles mm. away. So, you know, they have the technology to do it, and tomorrow they might come up with some staged event. And again, if the, if the little green Martians come, yet another reason to have a unified representation of humanity vis-a-vis -vis or, or, or to, to talk to, to, to the people from outer space or whatever. 
That's very interesting. So these are things to be watching for, folks. Uh, and also, Adrian, what, what do they have in common then? I, as I understand it, these 12 points, essentially, uh, what they have in common is that they could lead us to this need to submit to a, to a universal state. Well, all roads would seem to lead to Rome and all highways definitely to world government because if you look at it from either from one side or the other, whether it be the financial, the economic, the political, the diplomatic, the psychological, the religious even, uh, they will all lead to the fact that, hey, let's do away with all nation states, let's have world government. And the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations and Foreign Affairs, April 1974, an article written by former Ambassador Richard Gardner said, we have to do away with... Uh, sovereign nation states and instead of making a frontal attack against the nation state let's do an end run around the sovereign state and erode it piece by piece those were mm -hmm. his literal words and that's exactly what we're seeing today that seems to be what's taking place uh, let me just ask you very briefly and we do have to go unfortunately but the second argentine republic which is what you're working on so diligently uh and and, and as i saw what you were talking about in your video uh, you're, you're really trying to, to reveal what is really going on, why the ruling elite want us to think the way we think and act, uh, and then that we should do the opposite of what they want, and, and we'll come out all right. But could you just talk briefly about the Second Argentine Republic and what are you trying to accomplish there? 30-second summary. Uh, the, the, when you understand how the world really works and you do exactly the opposite of what they want, it boils down to five pillars. First of all, recover the sovereign nation-state, which they hate. Second of all, recover so, uh, sovereign currency, which means doing away with their owning the, the central bank. Third pillar, do away, reject the debt-based system. Fourth pillar, uh, re release our in, uh, Republican institutions from dependency on money. Let's have democracy, but not money-based, not being money-dependent. And fifth, put our values, our traditional values, back on their feet again. They have inverted all of our values. That's what they do with their psychological warfare. They've put literally the world uh, head downwards. Let's put the world head upwards, put our feet solidly on the ground. Let's look up towards the heavens, up towards the stars, up to God. And no doubt about it, Every country will find its solutions by just treading these uh, these very simple five pillars. We're trying to do this in Argentina, and I think that we stand a good chance, not of doing anything dramatic, but of advancing substantially during the year 2011, and that's what we're working at down here. Well, Adrian, I wished we had more time to talk to you. I know that you had much more to say. Uh, thank you. We'll have to have you back again sometime in the near future, if that's possible. Uh, I really, I really do appreciate what you are, uh, what you are trying to do, and I know our listeners do too. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break with Gil Schneider. He is the president of a very interesting and I think promising uranium exploration company called Athabasca Uranium. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Gil Schneider. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. 
The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network try not to try too hard it's just a lovely ride you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, that's what this show is about, what we're trying to be about anyway. And uh, we heard uh, you know, more about theory, about what's going on in the world, so on the big on the big picture, the truly big picture, the global, uh, in a global uh, context uh, with our last, with Adrian Salbucci. Uh, But, you know, when it comes down to it, we each have to look after our own interest as best we can. We have to prepare. uh, We have to pay the rents every month. We've got to, uh, you know, prepare for our future as best we can, put food on the table. And uh, then we start to think out into the future, you know, what's really going on. And I think it's very helpful to have these 
these philosophical, political, economic discussions like we have on this show on a regular basis, but it's also very, very uh, important and profitable to talk to people who run companies who are day-to-day -day involved in, in building wealth. And we're talking now, I'm glad, very glad to have with me, Gil Schneider. He's the president and CEO of Athabasca Uranium. Uh, Athabasca Uranium uh, trades in Toronto under the symbol UAX. And in the U.S., you can buy it under the symbol uh, ATURF. Uh, I believe there's approximately 18 million shares of stock outstanding. It's uh, selling at only 30 cents, so it has a pretty a pretty small market cap at this point in time. Uh, and if I've got it right, there's some $4 million of cash or something close to that in the bank. So uh, welcome, Gil, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay, for having me on your show. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, you are one of a few. Actually, we've... Uh, you know, in this in this uh, season, we uh, you are the only uranium company. Actually, we have uranium energy, but you will be joining us as a sponsor in the next season. And as I as it stands right now, anyway, you're the only uranium company. We have mostly gold mining companies and silver mining companies on our list, but certainly uranium is that other yellow metal uh, that that would seem to have a great deal of upside potential. And you were telling me uh, during the break. Uh, that the uranium prices have been creeping up. Tell us uh, what the uh, U308 price is these days, the spot price for U308 or uranium as it's known. Well, Jay, what's making this a very exciting space to be in is in the second quarter of 2010, uh, the spot price of the uranium was at $40 uh, per pound, and uh, on December the 20th, it's uh, $62.50 per pound, so it's moving up uh, really dry, quite dramatically. Uh, analysts are predicting that... Um, uh, per pound number of $80 um, wouldn't be out of order uh, in this, the coming year as well. Yeah, I might uh, mention to listeners who may not be familiar with the economics of, uh, of nuclear energy uh, that the price of uranium could go up very, very high to very high levels, and it wouldn't be very significant in terms of the overall cost of operating a nuclear power plant. Isn't that right, Gil? That's correct, yes. Uh, even doubling the price uh, wouldn't uh, have a very significant uh, effect on the operating cost. Uh, a point I'd like to make, though, uh, with respect to the spot price, is that uh, very few of the contracts are sold on the spot price. They're generally long-term contracts, and that was illustrated recently by both Cameco and Ariva. Uh, they both sold very large long-term contracts to uh, Chinese companies, uh, and Ariva in particular, which is owned by the French government. Uh, their contract was 20,000 tons uh, of the uranium and uh, that is valued at $3.5 billion. And if you do the math, it works out to about $79 a pound, which illustrates the point I was making earlier. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And, and actually, the uranium supply and demand situation, I know that in the United States, we, <clears throat> we uh, use something like, I think it's maybe 55 um, uh, million pounds of uranium a year. We do generate a lot of electricity in the United States with nuclear power, and we're only producing about four million pounds a year uh, in the U.S. And Uranium Energy Company, which is a sponsor of this last year, will be you know one of the first new producers of uranium in the United States. But it's only going to be producing maybe a million pounds or so. Uh, you are an uranium exploration uh, uranium exploration company. Uh, in the richest area of the world, of the, where the richest uranium mines are found. Talk to us a little bit about where 
uh, Athabasca uranium is located? Well, um, this wasn't an accident. We, we chose to be in the Athabasca Basin uh, that hosts the richest uranium in the world. Uh, the average grade, uh, for example, at the MacArthur River Mine is about 20, over 20 percent. And uh, when you're talking about 200 million pounds, uh, you're talking very large uh, opportunities there. And especially when you compare it to what uh, uranium grades are throughout the world. Uh, for example, uh, the largest mine actually has, in Australia, has a grade of 0.14 percent. And uh, the second largest mine in South Africa has an average grade of 0.042 percent. So you can see even at those low grades, at today's price, uh, these uh, grades are are quite uh, economical to, to mine, uh, but when you've got a grade of 20% and more, and the, the Hather uh, folks have um, uh, seen grades up to as high as 60 and, and I think even 80% in their discovery work. Well, if we're looking at uh, a ton at 20%, you're looking at uh, 400 pounds, if you're looking at a short ton anyway, uh, and at uh, $62.50, we're looking at uh, $25,000 a ton of value, Gil, does that sound yeah, that, that right? That sounds correct, yes. Those are some astounding numbers, and, and, you, uh, and, and obviously the margins if you find something like that. Of course, you haven't found it yet, but let me, let me ask you, Gil. I've heard it, I heard it described already. Uh, trying to find one of these high-grade deposits, even in a very rich area like you're at, like finding uh, a needle in a haystack. How do you go about, I know you're not a geologist, but how do you go about how does a company go about locating, trying to find a rich deposit? And I know that's what you're looking for. You're in that part of the world where you're not looking for these low-grade, uh, you know, leach projects. You're looking for a hard rock underground deposit. And uh, so how do you go about doing that? Well, it's been said that if you want to find a new mine, uh, be close to an existing mine. And uh, the properties that we've aggregated, we've aggregated three properties now. Each one of these properties um, is located uh, close by other uh, discoveries and other uh, producing mines. Uh, each one of our properties uh, could be a company maker in itself. So we're very excited about the, the three properties. Uh, as I mentioned, each one uh, is very exciting in its own right uh, because they're all close to existing properties. The, the MacArthur River property, which is our most recent acquisition, uh, is the most exciting, we think, though. Uh, it actually butts up right against the uh, Denison uh, Moore Lake project, and also it butts up against uh, Hather uh, claims as well. Uh, so in the reference to where the Moore Lake mine is located, it's only three miles away from uh, the property that we have at M um, McGregor. Okay, Gil, uh, sometimes I know... Um you know, looking at, at gold and silver and other other mineral deposits, that when you say these your property abuts up against the those other properties, do you know anything about structure that might suggest the potential for that uh, for those structures, those uh, uranium bearing structures to extend into your property? And that's the first question. Secondly, do you have any idea are these deep targets? Because some of these projects up there in uh, in Athabasca land up that up in that area are are kind of deep. Well, we've uh, purposefully um, selected properties that are called on the outer trend. Uh, and if you, uh, when, to answer your first question, uh, the the structures, the geological structures in this area, do go along a trend generally. And if you look at where the existing mines are located, you'll see uh, an inner trend, which are the deeper mines, and then you've got an outer trend, which are the, the more shallow mines. 
Uh, we have purposefully located and selected our properties on the outer trend, which are the, the more shallow mines. Uh, these are um, properties that we believe can be surface mined. And um, unfortunately, we can't show the, the audience our map. Uh, but um, if you look from a, a, a south-north uh, uh, easterly direction, this is the trend, the outer trend. Uh, in, in that trend are, are Key Lake, uh, Moore Lake, uh, and also the uh, Great Bear Lake uh, open pit mine uh, as well. So there's three uh, discoveries uh, on the outside outer trend uh, uh, currently, uh, and they're all shallow and can be surface mined. So we're looking for that kind of uh, ore body to be uh, close to the surface. Okay, Gail, you, we can't show them the map here, but do you have it on your website, perhaps? Yes, it is. If they look at the, at the website, on, uh, our website is athabascauranium.com, and uh, just uh, go through our presentation, uh, you'll see the, uh, the maps of the, the properties there. Okay. Gil, let me ask you, you're planning a drilling pro program coming up very soon. Well, can investors expect to see some drill results in 2011? Well, well, what we're doing is uh, we've uh, recently closed a $3.1 million financing, which was uh, oversubscribed. Uh, we've already started the exploration program. Uh, I should mention that each of these three properties have had uh, previous work done on it already, uh, and that's what uh, made us very excited in uh, acquiring these properties in the first place. Uh, but, for example, uh, what we've started on already is uh, a uh, 2,100 a kilometer line called a, a ZTEM airborne survey, and this will um, be over the Webb River and the McGregor project. And uh, then this will be followed by a 3D inversion and correlation uh, with some of the historic uh, GeoTEM airborne data that we have. And what we'll be doing this by doing the comparison, we'll be examining conductors and uh, faulting controls. Uh, then uh, another step uh, will be the next step in the um, discovery pattern that we've uh, planned is uh, a magnetotelluric MT, it's a ground survey, and this will provide 3D interpretation correlated with prior data, and this will re refine drill targets, and it'll also be done over this winter. So, okay. Uh, okay, Gail, so, so there will be information coming out, not drilling yet. Do you have money in the bank to finance this? Or are you going to have to go back to the market anytime soon? Well, well, an uh, exploration company always has to uh, go back to the market for additional exploration funds, but uh, we have sufficient uh, to do the program that we've planned now, uh, including uh, uh, what we're hoping for in the second quarter of 2010 is uh, that we'll have acquired sufficient data to um, identify drill targets of interest, and we, okay. we plan to do a limited drill program of 12 holes, about 300 meters deep each. Okay, very good, Gil. And your website again for people to follow your, your progress? It's athabascauranium.com. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, Gil Schneider. Sorry we don't have more time, but we're going to have to wrap up. We're going to go to commercial break. I'll be right back with my partner, Roger Wiegand, for some closing thoughts this week. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I've got uh, only about four minutes left, my engineer tells me, so let's get right into it with Roger Wiegand. Roger, one of the things that I'm really, I'm really puzzled about, and I know you've had some some questions about it as well. How long is this bond market going to um, uh, going to hold together? Now we've seen a lot of people are saying the Treasury market is finished. We've had people today talk to us about that on on the show today. Uh, you know, suggest that that it's all over for the long bond in the, in the U.S. Uh, Treasury. However, when I go back and look at a chart of the twenty to thirty year Treasury market. I see we're still in a bull market. I mean, we would have to come down quite a bit yet, and interest rates would have, the rates with yields would have to go up a lot before we'd break those long-term trend lines. In fact, you know, there was a more accelerated trend line with interest rates plummeting and, and bond prices going up substantially after Lehman Brothers. We haven't even broken that trend yet unless we did it today. So what say you? Are we close to, do you, do you think this is it? Do you think that you can say that the bull market in bonds, U.S. Treasuries are over? Because I'll tell you what, if that's the case, we're in a new game that, you know, things are going to be substantially different than they've been since 1982. What do you think? Well, I would agree with that, but I think that these things are very gradual, particularly when you consider the, the, the size of the bond market being 70 times larger than the stock market because it is such a behemoth that takes it a long time to really – uh, break out to the downside, which is what we're expecting is going to happen. And as you know, in looking at that chart, that 20 to 30 year extension, it just seems like it was going to go on forever. So while the early signals are there, as far as technically, as far as a breakdown, um, it can stumble around uh, in, in a bear market, go sideways for a while, then try to go a little higher and then come back down again. But in looking at bonds today, uh, the March futures uh, did fall down one full point there at 119.14. Uh, the open this morning was 121.11. So it did come down with a pretty good whack today of one full mm-hmm. point. But mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be a change in direction. The other thing that uh, our listeners should keep in mind is that uh, Bernanke has got this QE2 coming. And in my view, I think he's going to pump cash like you can't believe, all the way 
through the first three quarters of next year. Now, what does that mean for the longer pull? I think the dollar goes down and the bonds go down and the interest rates go up, but it could last another nine months yet. Well, indeed it could, Roger, but I think it's so important because so much really hinges on, you know, are we heading into an inflationary environment where the interest rates remain negative uh, or very low and allow the, you know, the fuel for the fire of inflation to to cook up. You know, we saw the last great inflation killed by Paul Volcker's uh, tight monetary policy that's, that forced interest rates into double digits. Uh, nobody believes that the Federal Reserve is going to do that now. But on the other hand, you know, rates could start to rise very dramatically. Unfortunately, Roger, we never have enough time. That's all the time we have. Uh, so we're going to be talking to you next week. And folks, next week we're going to have Ian Gordon with us. Uh, Ian, if he has his way, well, a deflation, a depression, a deflationary depression. Who knows? Interest rates could fall again like they did following Lehman Brothers. Although I think Ian isn't necessarily of that mind. I think Ian sees higher interest rates perhaps forcing a deflation another collapse uh, in the monetary system. In any event, thank you uh, so much for listening to us again next week. Uh, as I say, we're going to have Ian Gordon with us. I want to thank uh, my uh, the staff at Voice America, starting with my executive producer, Tacey Trump, uh, Ruben Colombe, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.